The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. In today's episode, I'm going to examine a BC Supreme Court case indexed as R.V. Morris, 2023, BCSC 106. For those of you that are interested, a link to the case can be found in the episode notes. This case involves the discovery of a modified flare gun and whether or not it met the legal meaning of a prohibited firearm as defined in the criminal code. It also highlights a defense lawyer's fanciful claim to undermine the Crown's case. Before we get to that, let's first look at the background facts leading up to the accused's arrest and subsequent firearm charge. At about 8 a.m. one January morning, an officer responded to a report of a suspicious vehicle. The vehicle was parked in a vacant lot located in a residential area on a native reserve near Kamloops, B.C. The area was known for drug activity. The officer located the vehicle, a truck, and ran its license plate. It was registered to a male. As the officer approached the driver's side, he could clearly see into the truck through its fully open window. The officer recognized the truck's lone occupant as Angeline Morris, a female. The officer had previously interacted with Morris on several prior occasions. This time, she was passed out and apparently sleeping in the driver's seat. She was wearing an unzipped jacket with a hoodie underneath and had a half-eaten package of ice cream on her chest. A backup officer also arrived. When the officer shouted to wake Morris up, the backup officer alerted him to the presence of a can of bear spray on the passenger seat. Morris was asked to step out of the truck, and as she did so, a baggie of what appeared to be heroin was seen on the driver's side floor. Morris was then arrested for possessing a weapon and possessing controlled substances. She was handcuffed and searched. A flare gun was discovered in her jacket pocket. The officer had to reach about five inches into this pocket to remove the gun. The gun was black in color with a zip tie on its barrel. The officer cut the tie to open up the barrel and he saw a screw which appeared to act as a firing pin. And there was one shotgun round in the gun's chamber. A sum of cash was found in Morris's hoodie and a purse located inside the truck was also searched. In the purse, police found pills, a scale, more drugs, a pipe, and empty baggies. As you would expect, the flare gun was sent to a firearms expert for examination. The expert said the gun was a flare launcher modified with a new barrel made from steel and other material. Although the flare gun was not originally designed to fire shotgun shells, its original plastic barrel had been replaced by a steel one with a liner of sufficient diameter to accept and chamber a 410 shotgun shell. The flare gun's firing pin had also been replaced with a sharpened screw. Black tape had been wrapped around the grip and the chamber end of the barrel to help align the firing pin with a shotgun shell, and the zip tie was used to hold the barrel closed. So, how was the expert able to conclude that the modified flare gun met the criminal code definition of a firearm? Remember, a firearm is defined as a barreled weapon from which any shot, bullet, or other projectile can be discharged, and that is capable of causing serious bodily harm or death to a person. This is where it gets a bit interesting. The expert testified he has seen flare guns of many varieties on other occasions that have been modified to discharge ammunition, including this particular type of flare gun. 
but the expert thought it wasn't safe enough to test fire the gun by discharging a live shotgun round, and he didn't want to risk destroying the exhibit. In a previous case, the expert, for safety reasons, remotely discharged a modified device. Although in that case the device was destroyed, a projectile was discharged. So here is what the expert did in this case. He inserted a primed shotgun shell without a projectile and pulled the trigger. The device discharged the primer on the shotgun shell. From this, the expert inferred that if a live cartridge was inserted into the device, a projectile would be discharged. As a result, he determined that the device was a functioning barreled weapon that could cause serious bodily injury or death to a person. Therefore, in his view, it met the criminal code definition of a firearm. And because the barrel was only 83 millimeters in length, it was a prohibited firearm. By definition, a prohibited firearm includes a handgun that has a barrel equal to or less than 105 millimeters in length. And a handgun is defined as a firearm that is designed, altered, or intended to be aimed and fired by the action of one hand. The expert also found the shotgun shell removed from the device met the definition of ammunition in the criminal code. He put that shell into a standard 410 shotgun and it discharged normally. Morris was charged with possessing a loaded prohibited firearm without being the holder of an authorization or a license or a registration certificate for the firearm along with three counts of possessing controlled substances under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Morris subsequently pled guilty to the drug charges, but proceeded to trial on the firearm charge. Although she was willing to admit that she did not hold an authorization, license, or registration certificate for firearms, and she did not argue the device found in her pocket was not loaded, her lawyer attacked the Crown's case in three areas. First, her lawyer suggested the modified flare gun was not a prohibited firearm. Second, she alleged that Morris did not know the gun was a firearm. And finally, she claimed Morris did not know she had the gun. So let's look at each defense challenge individually and see whether or not they were successful. Number one, was the gun a prohibited firearm? Now Morris's lawyer claimed the flare gun could not withstand the pressure of a live shotgun shell and therefore would not meet the definition of a firearm. She suggested that the shell would have blown up and not traveled down the barrel. After all, the expert did not test the device with live ammunition because it would be too dangerous to do so. Since the expert did not test the device with live ammunition, it could not be determined that it was capable of discharging a projectile. But we know the expert did not agree with this. Remember, in his opinion, the device was a functioning barreled weapon that could cause serious bodily injury or death to a person. The steel barrel's thickness was similar to that of a commercial firearm, and the expert was quite certain the device would have fired ammunition that could cause serious bodily injury or death. In the expert's opinion, the projectile would go down the barrel even though the frame of the flare gun would probably be destroyed. So, if you were the judge, which side would you agree with? Well, the judge accepted the evidence of the expert. After combining the meanings of firearm, prohibited firearm, handgun, and ammunition, the judge concluded that the modified flare gun loaded with a shotgun shell satisfied the legal test for a loaded, prohibited firearm. And the judge added this, quote, The fact that firing the device would have destroyed it is not legally relevant to the offense. There is no requirement in the criminal code that a firearm be capable of being fired repeatedly or multiple times, end quote. So, the fact the gun could have discharged a projectile only once would have been good enough to make it a firearm. Number two, did Morris know the modified flare gun was a firearm? As part of proving the possession charge, the Crown was required to prove that Morris had knowledge of or was reckless or willfully blind with respect to the characteristics of the device that made it prohibited. Morris's lawyer claimed that an ordinary person, without the expert's knowledge, would not have known the difference between a flare gun 
and the modified flare gun that was found in her pocket. The lawyer suggested Morris could have been carrying the device either because one, she had been camping, or two, because the area in which she was arrested was known for nuisance wildlife. There was one problem with this claim. There was no evidentiary foundation for it. Morris did not testify, and the arresting officer disagreed on cross-examination that Morris's truck was in an area known for nuisance wildlife. To suggest that Morris might have thought the device was just a flare gun that could be used to deal with wildlife was speculative. Here's how the judge put it, and I quote, The device contained a shotgun shell and was significantly modified by a metal barrel and black tape. It was found in the accused jacket pocket. The modifications to the flare gun can be clearly seen. In my view, the only reasonable inference is that the accused either knew that it was a firearm or was reckless or willfully blind to that fact, end quote. So it wasn't necessary for the Crown to prove Morris actually knew the gun was a firearm. It was enough that she saw the risk but took a chance or was deliberately ignorant. Number three, did Morris know she had the gun? The defense lawyer actually suggested that someone could have put the gun in Morris's pocket while she was sleeping. I think this was a Hail Mary, a desperate attempt to score late in the game. Would you buy this explanation? The judge didn't. Remember, the arresting officer testified the gun was about 5 inches deep in Morris's pocket and he had to reach inside to retrieve it. This led the judge to conclude that the only reasonable inference from the evidence was that Morris put the gun into her own pocket. The defense can't just throw any suggestion or inference out there and expect the judge to bite without any evidentiary basis capable of supporting it. Simply stating some fanciful hypothesis is not evidence, creating a plausible theory pointing to another alternative of possession and control. A judge must assess circumstantial evidence as a whole, viewed logically and in light of human experience, to determine whether it gives rise to reasonable inferences that are inconsistent with guilt. It is not open for a judge to accept an asserted fact as true if it is unsupported by any admissible evidence. Alternatives based on conjecture and speculation do not amount to evidence. Suggesting that the gun somehow found its way into Morris's pocket without her knowledge was pure conjecture amounting to speculation. It was not a plausible theory or reasonable possibility that cast doubt on the Crown's case. I would call such a defense submission as merely wishful thinking. Not that it matters, but I agree with the judge that the only obvious and logical inference from the totality of the evidence was that Morris had knowledge of the gun in her jacket pocket and she certainly had control of it. This reminds me of what I call the not-my-pants defense. Years ago, a colleague of mine arrested and accused with a quantity of drugs in the pocket of the pants he was wearing at the time. The accused defense in court to the possession of those drugs was that the pants were not his. He didn't know the drugs were in the pocket. He had put on someone else's pants but did not check the pockets. Therefore, he did not have the requisite knowledge. Now, the judge in that case bought the defense. He had found that the Crown had not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused had the requisite knowledge for possession. So what is the difference between that case and this one? Well, in the not-my-pants case, the accused testified. He provided evidence, and this evidence raised a reasonable doubt in the judge's mind. With Morris, she did not testify. There was no evidence she entered the truck without a gun in her pocket. Instead, the defense lawyer merely threw out the idea. But a lawyer's suggestions and submissions are not evidence. Submissions could be based on the evidence or even the absence of it. But in Morris's case, the someone snuck it in my pocket while I slept defense was not based on evidence. So, how did this all end? Not well for Morris. The judge was convinced that the Crown had proven the essential elements for the offense of possessing a prohibited firearm beyond a reasonable doubt. 
she was convicted. So what are some of the things we can learn from this case? Well, here's some takeaways for me. Number one, if your charge involves a firearm, the Crown has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the device met the legal definition of a firearm. This is a no-brainer, but sometimes this will sound easier than it is. It will often, but not always, require the evidence of an expert. This could involve test-firing the device using live ammunition, or, as in this case, using a primed cartridge without a projectile and offering an expert opinion that the device would be capable of firing ammunition that could cause serious bodily injury or death. Number two, proving possession requires more than simply finding the device on a person. For example, in a Section 95 criminal code offense case, the Crown must establish beyond a reasonable doubt the actus reus, which includes the following. One, the accused possessed the firearm. Two, the firearm was a prohibited firearm. Three, the firearm was loaded. And four, the accused did not hold an authorization or a license under which they could possess the firearm or a registration certificate for it. Being a mens rea offense, Section 95 also requires proof of knowledge of these elements. The requisite element of knowledge can be established in three ways. Actual knowledge, recklessness, or willful blindness. Actual knowledge requires proof that the accused knew what they possessed. Criminal recklessness requires proof that the accused was reckless as to the nature of what they possessed. It must be established that the accused was aware of a danger or risk that their possession was prohibited, but nevertheless persisted despite the danger. They saw the risk, but took the chance anyways. Willful blindness requires that the accused knew enough about the device that further inquiry ought to have been made, but instead, they willfully shut their eyes or refrained from making the inquiry. Willful blindness is also known as deliberate ignorance, or, as I call it, being dumb on purpose. The person does not wish to know the truth and prefers to remain ignorant, thinking this will somehow absolve them from culpability. So, the Crown in this case was not only required to prove the actus reus of the Section 95 offense, mainly the device found in Morris's pocket was a prohibited firearm. They also had to prove it was loaded, and she did not possess the required license and registration certificate. The Crown also had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the mental or mens rea element for the offense, that she knew or was reckless or willfully blind to these facts. Number three, evidence is different from the suggestions or submissions of a lawyer. What a lawyer says to the judge is a submission, but counsel's podium is not the equivalent of the witness box. What witnesses, admitted exhibits, or documents say are evidence, as are any admissions that may be made. Another way to look at this is that evidence comes from the witness box, not from the mouth of the advocate. After all, submissions or suggestions from a lawyer are not made under oath. Now, a lawyer can refer to the evidence that has been given when making their submissions, but they cannot give evidence themselves when they are making them. After the evidence is concluded, the Crown and Defense will have an opportunity to make closing submissions. This provides each side with an opportunity to briefly summarize the evidence and try to persuade the court that a particular point of view is the correct one and to decide the case in their favor. During submissions, a lawyer can refer to the evidence that has been heard during the trial, provided they do so correctly. Another way to understand this concept is to read the model jury instruction for criminal cases entitled Evidence Defined. These jury instructions for criminal cases were created by the Canadian Judicial Council and provide judges with standard language which they can use when speaking with members of juries about their duties, the nature of the criminal charge before the court, and the legal rules which apply to their deliberations. I'm going to read you that now. So pretend you know nothing about evidence and that you are sitting on a jury and I am the judge. And I quote, You must consider only the evidence presented in the courtroom. Evidence is the testimony of witnesses and things entered as exhibits. 
It may also consist of admissions. The evidence includes what each witness says in response to questions asked. Only the answers are evidence. The questions are not evidence unless the witness agrees that what is asked is correct. The Crown and the defense have agreed about certain facts. This is called an admission. You must accept those admitted facts without further proof. The indictment that you heard read out when we started this case is not evidence. What the lawyers and I say when we speak to you during the trial is not evidence. When you go to the jury room to decide this case, the exhibits will go with you. Consider them along with the rest of the evidence. End quote. There you have it. If this explanation is good enough for the jury members deciding the fate of an accused, it should be good enough for us. Now you might say, wait a minute. I've seen or heard about lawyers using charts, poster boards, timelines, PowerPoints to explain their theory of the case. Are these types of aids considered evidence? Not unless they are entered as exhibits. If they are not entered as exhibits, they aren't to be considered by the judge or jury. There is a model jury instruction for this too. Quote, the Crown, or defense, has used charts, summaries, PowerPoint, etc. to help illustrate or explain some of the evidence. These were used for convenience. They are not exhibits. They are not evidence in this case. They do not go to the jury room with you. This is because they may or may not be accurate. They may have contained mistakes. You must make your findings of fact from the evidence given at trial, not from the charts, summaries, PowerPoint, etc. End quote. Finally, make good observations and record them so you can recount them later. The officer in this case testified where he found the gun and the effort he made in removing it. He said he had to reach about five inches into Morris's pocket to retrieve it. Facts like this can assist the judge in applying ordinary human experience and common sense in their assessment of the evidence and close the door to a reasonable doubt. Remember, the officer's testimony as to how far he had to reach into Morris's pocket led the judge to conclude the only reasonable inference from the evidence was that she put the gun into her own pocket. Someone else did not sneak it in. So make good notes and take photos. Without them, it may be difficult, months or even years later, to describe in detail what you did and how you did it. Now, I have to stop here and offer this thought. Sometimes I wonder whether or not the defense ever really thinks about the import of what they are trying to sell the court. Think about two of the arguments the defense presented in this case. Number one, I didn't know the gun was there because someone else had access to my pocket and put it there while I slept. And number two, I am just an ordinary person. I ain't no firearm expert, so I couldn't tell it was a firearm from a flare gun. In my mind, these two claims are mutually exclusive. Either Morris didn't know the device was there, or knew it was there, but didn't know it was a gun. How can someone know and not know at the same time? You can't have it both ways. It's like having your cake and eating it too. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. Or maybe you feel like providing me with some feedback. Either way, I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe. Stay safe.